Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. Data analysis and important topics from around the world of paramedic practice from the College of Paramedics. Hello and welcome to another Paramedic Insight podcast, uh, the first of 2021. Uh, my name is Gary Strong. I uh, hope that wherever and whenever you're listening to this, that you're uh, in good shape. Uh, and if you're not in these most challenging of times, then I do hope that you're you're getting the help that you need to uh, look after yourselves very conscious of, of what everybody uh, in health and care is dealing with at the moment. So thanks for listening in. Uh, we're going to talk about something a little bit different uh, today. Uh, following on from our pre-hospital burns podcast that we put out in October, I am delighted to welcome uh, burn specialist nurse uh, Chrissy Stiles and uh, firefighter turned researcher, if I can call you that, David, um, uh, David Wales, to have a chat to me about a report that came out a while ago uh, about the work of the fire service. Now, I'm so glad David's here because otherwise we'd have a podcast where a paramedic and a nurse were busy discussing the fire service. So David's here to keep us anchored in the reality of the fire and rescue service uh, practice in the UK. Thank you both for joining me. Um, uh, Chrissy, do you want to introduce yourself and, and just uh, tell us the title of this report? It's got a great title. Thank you, Gary. Um, yes, so I'm a, by trade, a burn specialist nurse of about 70 years experience now. I've uh, gone on to complete a master's in burn care and um, have been part of the burns and pre-hospital community through uh, various channels through practical work and educational opportunities which kind of led me to uh, be very inclusive of who's involved with uh, our patients care before they arrive to the burn service which um, in collaboration with David uh, resulted in a report titled saving lives is not enough yeah and it, it, it it's a great title and and i will say thank you as well you've, you've given very generously of your time to the paramedic community in terms of uh, teaching uh, and lectures and, and helping with some of our e-learning so um david um great to have you on board tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to this report thank you gary um yes at the time of writing the report i was uh, a fire officer in kent fire service and the since then, I've left and I now work as a consultant and cross the span between, I guess, customer experience, helping organisations prepare for new uncertainties and changes, um, but also in the international crisis and disaster space. And my particular interest in that is really understanding it from a human perspective. And the trigger for that was actually the origins of this report. Back in 2009, we actually asked the question of, why didn't the public behave as we expected them to or as we advised them to? And you can imagine from any organisation, we thought we understood what people should do when they encountered a fire, but increasingly we were seeing them act in different ways. And we wanted to understand that why initially, I have to say, so that we could change their behaviours to accord with us. Um, over time, we realised actually that was the wrong way around to be looking at it. But um, as we did that human behaviour study, it led to un wanting to really better understand what happened all the way along the journey. Because the only person that sees end to end is the burn survivor. 
and mm, we yeah. didn't really understand that well enough to ensure we was playing our part, not only to do the best, but to avoid harm. Yeah, okay, uh, that that's really interesting uh, around um, uh, human behaviour in in the, the sort of crisis emergency of a burn injury and a burns event. Um, what drew you to this, uh, uh, Chrissy, from your experience? So obviously working in a burn service, we see uh, the result of the injury and then the aftermath, the consequences of um, the injury healing. So even when our patients get better and uh, have no longer need for dressing changes, uh, surgeries, uh, psychological support, once they actually are discharged home, um, that's when the reality of the injury really strikes. And of course, uh, as the uh, burns professionals, we do still continue um, to input into that aspect of our patient's care. The challenges of going home with severely scarred, contracted hand that is no longer functionally um, able to work or a visible scar um, on the face or wherever it might be, the difficulties that our patients continue to encounter as a result of that injury uh, are absolutely immense and can last for months and years and sometimes decades, especially in case of children, burn survivors. So um, my interest really was, I know that in the burn service, we are improving and carrying on with research and trying to better our practice and patients' outcomes. But actually, a lot of our patients' outcomes are also governed by the initial minutes and hours that are completely outside of our control within a, a warm burns unit within a hospital setting. Our patients don't come directly to us post-injury. So I started to uh, look at who else is involved in our patient's journey, who else is there first, uh, who else uh, can intervene first uh, in their care. And actually, those are the professionals, those are the services, fire services, police, ambulance service and emergency departments. Those are the professionals that actually can, in true terms, impact the long term outcome for our patients. And I don't think either of us knew that when me and David started this conversation about, did you realize that this is what you could actually achieve? Um, and similarly with my work with uh, ambulance service and our paramedic colleagues, um, I don't think we all appreciate just the value, the, the weight of responsibility that we have on each one of our shoulders. And at each point in our patient's journey, that each one of us has a, an opportunity to impact their outcome for better or for worse. So um, this is kind of how we came about to even having a conversation about why are firefighters important in a burn survivor's outcomes and how they can change uh, and improve the outcomes for our patients. Thank you. And that, of course, explains the title of the report, really, that saving lives is not enough, that um, actually we, we, we're wanting people to have the, the after a horrible experience to go on to have the best life experience we can make possible and I, th I think we you know it's fair to say as a paramedic uh, I'm, I'm very used to the idea that that uh, early actions uh, in any incident or, or, or health emergency uh, will have a long-term impact um, yeah David how, how, how does that thinking um, transfer to the fire and rescue service what, what's the the journey been like first of all to find out 
information, I guess, uh, you know, about what happens at scene and then to think what needs changing. It's been an interesting journey, that's for sure. I think, as I say, I thought I understood my job having at the time of starting the research, been in the fire service over 20 years. You build up your expectations of what you think should happen, what you're doing, and we all go to work with the best intention, so there's, there's no criticism there. But increasingly, as we spoke to members of the public, heard their stories in full, heard the aftermath of what happened after we've left the scene, thinking we've done the job that we should be doing. And we heard the, the language they used. It was very emotional. And I think it, it's really struck me that they knew how this event affected them as individuals in a way that I could never understand. And one of the, the strongest ones that I used as a story was uh, a mother telling me how her 11-year-old son had been at home there had been a small fire and electricity meter out the front door. Never came into the house, but it just prevented him in leaving. And I was interviewing them about eight months after the event. It was a very small fire from us. Absolutely no reason to recall it at all. But the mother told me that the child was still scarred by that. He didn't want to be left alone because he was fearful he'd done the wrong thing and that the fire could happen again. But, of course, about 11, 12 years old, he doesn't want to, want to be out with mum either. And... You just think we could have turned that round. We put the fire out. That's our job. But the impact of that was very, very different and one that we could never have imagined unless we had that conversation. And the mother just said, if you could have spoke to him the day after, it would have made us such a difference. So we now have, through, I guess, not really understanding, a child who may for life be haunted by the sight, smell or sounds of the fire, or certainly for a very long period of time afterwards, had we spent 10, 15 minutes talking to them, we could have had somebody go to school as the best ambassador. We could have given them a badge, reassured them they did everything, explained what happened, asked any questions, and we would have had somebody go back to a very difficult peer group to reach as a strong ambassador and who felt good about what they did. And I think when you hear those stories and you hear them so frequently, it's impossible not to come away and, and start to question, do I do everything in my job or am I focused on the, the specific function and task, which is important, but the opportunities to make a difference to people are beyond that. And I think in terms of the engagement, Christy and I first met at um, a conference in Edinburgh at Isby, and there were a thousand people from the Burns community there, just myself and a researcher from the fire service. And I think it's that level of engagement we've got to be much more used to having these conversations, understanding what each other does, but bringing the customer in, the patient, however you want to describe them, and understanding what they need of us as well as what we think we should do. That's a really powerful story, uh, and it, it, it speaks volumes. I wonder, uh, just one example, how did you go about gathering more data, more information uh, then from um, victims and people who've been through the um, yeah, the burn services uh, in the hospital. So, yeah, how, how did you actually start building information to build the report with? We, um, as I say, we came at it initially trying to understand the patient journey. It was a, really much about informal conversations rather than the formal project at that stage. But what we realised was that there's a strong desire to get people away from the scene. And even when I was doing my exams in the fire service, we used to set up a, a, a fire situation and we would bring a casualty out, simulated by a dummy, put them on a salvage sheet with a first aid kit, that bit's ticked and now we get on with the fight in the fire. 
And I think that sort of mentality pervaded us quite a long time. We would get the casualty out to the ambulance and the ambulance would go away. But as we look, if you look at it in sections, you get this sum of the parts model. And what we tried to do was look at it from end to end. And one of the things that Chrissy said to me early on, which really struck me was, we have this three hour window to get water applied and cool the injury. The difference that makes is incredible, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. Yeah, but typically yeah. they get into burn services at eight hours and you, you start to, to the opportunity is gone and it's not because there was no water there was water at every stage of that journey other than potentially whilst they're on the road so why is that not happening and the truth is because as i say only one person sees the full journey so we try to take an event uh, an approach that looks at end to end where are the intervention opportunities what is it we want to gain for that so we're very much at the scene thinking aren't they lucky we've saved their life? And of course, that's the first outcome. But if we want to get, as the burn surgeons do, the best quality of life outcome, that should also start at the scene as well. We can't have different aspirations. There's no reason to. And again, I was very struck when Chrissy started to explain to me that the impact of what we consider minor injuries, such as hand or the face, they're life-changing. For recording yeah. purposes, they're minor. For the person, they're life-changing. So I think, to answer your question, we do need to step back and really think about what data is important, not just the codified ones that we think tell us our job, but what is making the difference to the outcomes of the patient's lives that we all deal with. And similarly, Gary, the, I would also add to that is that in the burn service, as burn professionals, we have no idea what happens to our patients at scene, in transfer, any challenges encountered. The, the frequent presentation of the patient that I would admit into the burn service, the history would be as simple as there was a house fire, this is your patient. You don't get the the kind of the grainy, the comprehensive detail of, you know, the windows blew through the pressure that built up. The, the patient actually jumped out first, and but they were also sustained quite severe burns. All of this detail quite often is lost at the point of handover. By the time the patient's been through multiple handovers, that detail is missing. So we are hugely unaware in the burn service as to the challenges that you in the ambulance service and the fire service also encounter at the scene. And the way that I like to think about it is that when we started to understand how our patient experiences each one of our services, it's a little bit like putting little jigsaw pieces together. One service only in, is kind of almost interested or is only connected to the next service in line. So you're only interested in that boundary between your handover from you to the next service. And the patient is the only one who actually sees the whole jigsaw puzzle fully complete. And this is what we would like to put across to all of our colleagues. And that's why we kind of wrote the report is that we each puzzle piece needs to realize that that is quite an essential cog in making that full picture complete. And whether it's a horrible negative outcome kind of picture, whether it's a really positive story and that's inspirational and we played our part in it, that's the difference that we could each make in that patient's journey and their outcome. That, that's powerful. I, like you working for the health service for many years, we've talked a lot about patient-centered care, but it's not often we actually sort of try and inhabit that journey from event to recovery. 
uh, and see what it's like. And I think you, you guys have done a, a fantastic job of doing that, actually. Uh, and, uh, you know, I commend to our listeners to read the report. It, it's not too long and it's very readable and, and it brings out some really useful points for, um, obviously, it's aimed primarily at the fire and rescue service, but uh, the paramedic community and, and ambulance services is a lot that, that we could take note of there. And I take from your point there, Chrissy. you know, as a paramedic, uh, you know, I would normally say, well, you know, thank you very much, uh, firefighters, for rescuing that casualty. Um, you know, I do my bit. I hand over to the emergency department. That's all I see. Uh, and, of course, uh, the, the fire service were one step earlier than my part. And the burn service, Chrissy, you're at least one step beyond the emergency department part. So I can see there's a whole chain of communication that needs sorting out somehow. So I guess my, my next question is, um, what's happened since you published it? Have you been able to um, deal with some of these issues you're talking about? For example, the, the, you know, the communication and getting more information from the scene? I think in a way, things have happened almost outside of the report itself, um, just because our technology has moved on. Now, the burn service where I worked, we were very much in favour of telemedicine. And at the time, we actually had telemedicine links set up with all our referring emergency departments who could use imagery to access our service. And therefore, we could advise firsthand on the care ongoing. And then that got rolled out to the Southeast Coast Ambulance Service as well. So we could also get images from uh, the paramedics who were attending the patients. That happened much rarer because of the difficulties with connectivity believe it or not but wow. since then we've had the good sam app on scene you know the, the live video link which is exactly what we've wanted for for years and years we don't necessarily need the extraordinary length and detail and words you need to show me what the house looks like or what's the scene looking like. Show me what the patient is looking like. And I can tell you exactly what you need to do right there and then to improve their outcomes. So if you needed support pre-hospitally on scene, burn services are very much accessible to you for consultation, for advice, for guidance, because we know that we can't be there with you, but we could actually influence and support you and more importantly, that patient who requires that specialist input and we could guide you. One of the points that David made in our conversations when we were preparing the report was that and I haven't thought about it in this way, that in the emergency services and in healthcare, we go to work every day expecting to be confronted with something traumatic, something shocking, something that would be, you know, really distressing. But we're ready. We were trained for it. We're, we're prepared for it. Maybe not all of it, but we kind of anticipate that something like that is likely to happen because of the job that we do. For the public... It's an event that is sudden, is extreme, is incredibly traumatic and incredibly challenging. So we need to kind of think about not just people who survive burns and not just people who become our patients, but also other members of public who quite often gather around them, maybe even family members who attempted rescue or neighbours who are watching. What happens to the, the psychological impact of witnessing this and not being prepared for it, not being trained for it, and then finding a way to somehow make it right and dealing with that emotional trauma and memory of it that a little bit like post-traumatic stress disorder 
disorder can stay with uh, these members of the public for years and years. So we have to distinguish between the way that we as professionals are affected by an event to a possibly a slightly different slant that our patients who experience it and also witnesses to that trauma will also experience this. These are very different concepts. I think just picking up on that, the, the idea that there's one event but multiple experiences is, is very true. And certainly for the fire service, when we talk about injuries, we think of physical and observable immediate injuries. And what we know from some of the things that people witness, whether they've been directly involved or just as observational witnesses, these can change lives. They can break down relationships. They can lead to all sorts of changes because people cannot cope with what they've seen and we haven't thought to signpost them to the right care. But just picking up on your, your point about the report, Gary, I, I think the British Burn Association have been absolutely amazing, certainly for me, facilitating over a period of years to understand how the, the Burns community works, allowing me access to the incredible colleagues within it and to, to piece together the bits that I didn't understand and was really encouraged that they provided their full endorsement and support for the report. And certainly my service, Kent Fire Service at the time, was very, very supportive, um, adopt, supporting all the recommendations. And even before I left, we were seeing some great changes. They were very keen, particularly around schools, actually, to younger children. Chrissy did a couple of very powerful presentations. And it really motivated them to, in truth, relate it to friends and family. You know, is this the outcome I'd want for them? And could we do more? And the answer in, in all those cases was yes, we could think flexibly. Is there any reason we couldn't support the ambulance service? We've got water or we've got trained personnel. If the ambulance service can't get there immediately, but we can to help make sure that three hour window is used to get water calling, we can do that. And we had some great conversations with the local ambulance service to progress that. One of the things I challenged my colleagues on as well was about why is it we turn up to go into a building we can't really do much about response time that's fixed but we can control what happens when we're there and you, again when you stand back and look at things we thought why is it we're going into a building completely protected to find somebody and at the point we get to them we still then just bring them out a route that we're not prepared to go because of the heat and smoke and so the report advocates we should protect on contact we should go into the building prepared to protect people from the smoke and the heat and one of the, the the things we've been encouraged by is that now in Kent, London and a number of other services are starting to use smoke hoods, which is an important first step. So we've been really pleased with the response to the report. It's challenging in places, certainly to the fire service, but recently um, we had great news that the National Fire Chiefs Council have provided their support for it as well. So hopefully the next stage we'll see that adopted into national guidance for fire services. But I think we'd really encourage paramedics, ambulance services, to speak to the fire service and say, what can we do? You know, can we, are we all operators to make sure we get the best outcomes? Is there more we can do? Because the answer that we found is yes. And hopefully this report will help those conversations and provide some structure and some evidence. It was really exciting to hear uh, in the bulletin from Kent Fire Service, very kindly shared with me by their chief, Anne Millington, 
the, the news that the firefighters were actually attending chemical injuries, were attending scald injuries, were attending, attending burn injuries to deliver first aid, to deliver irrigation, to deliver first aid at scene alongside ambulance service, sometimes getting there before the ambulance service colleagues were there and continuing and holding the fort and actually doing the right thing at the right time that was, would have been the most effective time to do it. Uh, I know we keep talking about the three-hour window for Burns First Aid, but ultimately, as immediately as possible, is way more beneficial than three hours later. So, yes, we have that time frame, but actually, if the fire service is available, if our colleagues and fire can attend those, especially children with scald injuries, which is the most frequent presentation to the burn service, why can't they turn up? Why can't they hold down the fort and support the parents and administer first aid until the paramedic colleagues arrive and then uh, start uh, doing more medical, more clinical interventions? Because I think this is where a, a little bit of uh, confusion comes is that we're not talking about drug administration. We're not talking about complex clinical procedure. We're talking about first aid. And in my teaching, I would always say that the best first aid is already at the scene. It's all. It's the patient themselves, first and foremost. It potentially is their next of kin. And if they're unable, then who's the next available person? And, and that quite frequently could be the fire service. Um, and if the firefighters have a quick response time or are available, uh, more available to attend, why not utilize that resource? And that's where life's, you know, quality of life for our patients can be changed in a great way. I think that's, that's really good news from Kent, isn't it? And uh, I hope that's um, being replicated elsewhere. We've, it's taken us a while to discover, I think, uh, looking at it from a paramedic professional perspective, how well firefighters and paramedics can work together if we you know, put aside perhaps some of our uh, traditional roles and, and understand the, the support that's available. And I'm thinking you know, the, the various um, uh, co-responding initiatives that are, have gone on to help us with cardiac arrest. And of course, now during COVID, fire service offering tremendous support to, to um, the ambulance service. But also, I can't help thinking while, while you're talking there, Cressy, that you know, demand as you know, on the ambulance services is unprecedented at the moment. Uh, and that should not lead to some poor Burns victim having to wait a long time for an ambulance when they could get help from the fire service. So it's encouraging news from you there. Absolutely. I think with um, regards to availability, I mean, some of the challenges to the content of the report, and uh, as we said, it's not necessarily uh, easy reading. Uh, it does challenge current practice. But what we're talking about is being prepared for the patient that you're attending. So if the fire service are attending, we're talking about water availability and having a water strategy. And similar to uh, paramedic colleagues, I'm very aware that you guys can carry limited amount of fluids. Quite often they're intravenous fluids that are actually needed for a different reason. So you can't use that for first aid. So if we are attending, say, a patient's a patient with a burn injury at scene, we need to have a plan. We need to have a resource that we can access. And obviously that's why we put a hierarchy of water element into this report. Of course, best would be domestic property water. If, if an incident happened at home and the home is still safe to use, you know, shower water at the scene, perfect. If that's not available, what's the next best thing? Well, you potentially could use the, the fire engine, you know, the, the fire hydrant water. 
And this is where the challenges would come in, saying, okay, but we can get them really cold, they can become hypothermic. So those are the challenges that we try to address. We know that these concerns will come up. We know that currently is winter time, and if we're starting to cool uh, um, burn survivor outdoors, is that ideal for them? Well, of course it isn't. So how can we protect? How can we shelter? Can we find alternative domestic property? If that's not the uh, available, then could we warm somehow the water that we're delivering? Can we filter the water? Because it's not exactly going to be very clean to deliver that directly to wound. So all of these things we know and we can plan for. And I felt like it was mine and David's job to just point out that these are the issues we know about. And we would uh, ask for industry, for example, to help us problem solve those, because these are actually quite simple and straightforward solutions for such a massive benefit. If you deliver first aid within that time frame, patients no longer require surgery, they will have less scarring, they will have less infections, they will stay in hospital for less time, and they will have a better quality of life outcomes. Why would we not you know, financial considerations aside, why would we not want that for somebody, like David said, if this was your next of kin, if this was your loved person, is that what you would want for them? Well, yes, of course we would. And that is what we try to put in as challenges to all of us to improve what we currently have and accept as uh, best practice. I think your point earlier, Gary, about what do we want from this, it's there's a lot of really great examples, I think, through COVID where, and even before I left the service, of seeing on the ground teams working almost as one team between paramedics, ambulance and fire service. And I saw that road traffic accidents, all sorts of events where that started to come together at almost practitioner level. I think from our perspective, we stood back with this report and said, well, what about the service design? Can you, as an individual agency, design a good outcome? And the truth is you can't because that journey is affected prior to it, your involvement and after your involvement by too many other factors. So I think what we'd really like to see is more service design that is genuinely end-to-end based around the patient's experience. It's evidence-led and it's very user-centred. And that includes not just the procedures we do, but actually the harm potential, making sure that what I introduce as a fire service doesn't do any harm further down the stream to somebody else and making sure we always check and balance. And we've got to be prepared to have those conversations and, and in the right way challenges amongst service to say well why do you do that because only once we get the service design right can the practitioners follow but i think at the moment we've seen some great examples and willingness of the services at practitioner level to work together i think from my side i'll say we've now got to match that commitment with the service design being as strong as it can and informed genuinely by user needs whether we want to call them patients or customers i think that's a really important message probably a good place to start winding up our conversation but before I do I just want to ask you guys so what what plans you've got to do with this next if if you know, how how do you hope to influence service design I feel that um, our role was to put this forward. So in in a way, the fact that the British Burn Association and the National Fire Chiefs Council have kindly given their support to this report is really affirming that the idea is captured, that somebody uh, in those organisations feel that uh, actually it is valid and that there is ways that we can improve it. 
and we, we feel that the report is a starting point, uh, by no means is it a pilot or a definitive piece of research, is just a proposal as to how a vision of how we could improve uh, service design and patient experience and ultimately work together slightly better with possibly more appreciation of capability of each one of our services and also the challenges and maybe stuff that we just are not able to do, the knowledge we don't have. Uh, and that's also okay. But if you have many, many friends in many different services and we're all working together for improving that one person's journey and their outcome, actually, this is what matters. And that's why putting this forward and um, a reassuring point for us came was it a couple of years back now where the report was put forward in the was nominated for innovation category in the excellence and fire awards you know so to have that level of recognition especially within the fire service that they themselves pick out that actually yes you're right we, we can improve things and actually these are simple things Things like that are really reassuring. I don't necessarily feel that we as two individuals have necessarily a concrete role to play in the future of this particular project. Obviously, the concept, the idea was started by us, but we feel that it's over now to more professional bodies to implement the elements proposed and to make it fit into this one whole wonderful jigsaw puzzle piece where all of our patients' needs are met. And in a way, Gary, you'd be aware that there's organisations like NHS England and King's Fund who have looked quite closely at shared decision-making and having patient and public voice involved in all of the care. The quote that sticks to mind is, no decision about me without me. And yeah. this is what we're trying to get across here is let's listen to what our patients, to what uh, the public are telling us, what their experience is. Are we even measuring? Are we even listening to what their experience is? Or do we just think because we're professionals, we know what's best? And this is what this report is to challenge is um, we think we are doing the best. Uh, but by involving the person who's affected by our care, by our interventions, actually we can make it even greater. I think one of the things that you sort of learn from a project like this as well is change is never linear. And in some ways, this sort of change is very difficult to predict. Um, so picking up on Chrissy's point, we feel that we've, we've, we've raised the issues. We don't expect that they will necessarily be taken forward in exactly the form we suggest. And that, that's fine. What we would really love to see is those professional debates and improvements and the ownership. You can't force change on somebody. You can persuade them of the validity of it and hope that they then take forward your ideas. And, and as authors, you have to sometimes let go of that looking exactly as you predicted. But what's been really encouraging is actually some of the principles like this have, have now informed work in disaster where they're trying to improve the aspiration. Again, it's that idea that you're not just lucky to survive a disaster. In the age of the technology, the professional skills that we all have, we should constantly be pushing the bar up to say, is saving a life okay? If that life is now full of challenges that were avoidable, or should we really be saying from the off, we want the best possible outcome? Ideally, we get this person back to pre-event condition. If not, we'll get as close as we possibly can, but that has to start from the very first intervention and actually, the very first intervention isn't the first professional responder. It's us making sure that those on scene, the friends, the families, 
have got the right advice so that they can begin the care that we can then pick up from as our resources allow. But I think, as I say, we've been very, very pleased with the response to the report so far. We will always be available to help people if they need some interpretation, support or guidance around it. And we now have to let it go out in the world and hopefully make a difference. Yeah, thank you. Well, you certainly made yourselves available to um, the, the paramedic profession today by, by chatting to me. Uh, and uh, I hope um, you know, a good number of our, our members and paramedics and others who work in and around ambulance services will, will, will have a listen and, and realise that the, the changes in practice that are going on and what's possible uh, when we put ourselves in that frame of mind of, of, of thinking through the eyes of the person that we're caring for. As you say, it's all about the centering the care on the person at the end of the day. David, uh, Chrissy, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for making the paramedic community aware of your work. Uh, and uh, it's it's you know it's it's easy to see for me. I think how we can uh, at, a, at a local and a national level be keen to collaborate uh, as far as possible with everyone who is involved in in the in the journey of, of, of the person affected by a burns injury so yeah thank you for your time thank you for your input thank you for your incredibly hard work and it's encouraging to see that it's being so well received and uh, you know I, I, I'm quite sure that whatever you do you will be keeping an eye on it and making sure that um, it has the impact you intended as time progresses thank you very much Gary for having us yeah thank you Gary yeah, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. And uh, if any of our listeners have any questions uh, about the report, you're welcome to get in touch by the College of Paramedics. And uh, I, shall, I shall share on your, uh, your comments and concerns with, with David and Chrissy. Uh, so uh, thank you for listening and bye for now. Paramedic Insight Podcast from the College of Paramedics.